When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Welcome to Crisis Management. I'm Alicia Sikerska, and this is a show dedicated to helping businesses navigate their way through the coronavirus pandemic. On today's episode, we're going to be talking about hotels filing a class action lawsuit over COVID-19 insurance. We're also going to be talking about Google keeping its employees at home for the next year. And then we're going to dig into luxury retailers and what they should be doing as they go forward past this pandemic. Now, to get through all this, I'm once again joined by Mark Satov. He is the founder of Satov Consultants and a business strategy expert. Uh, He's here to help provide ideas and solutions for businesses that are dealing with the pandemic. Mark, welcome back to the show. Um, Before we get into things, I understand you flew to Montreal last week. Tell me all about that. How did that go? I did. It was a big event. Uh, It was my first flight (laughs) since uh, my flight to Florida on March 11th, and we landed up driving back. Uh, It was it was pretty uneventful, to be honest, once I was on the plane and even in the airport, the airport was empty, as people had told me. Uh, As I mentioned, I splurged for business class just to give myself uh, a bit more room. Uh, Everybody was pretty relaxed. Uh, I'm not sure if the others uh, on the plane were uh, had had been flying already, but people weren't panicked. Uh, Everybody was relaxed and, you know, it went off without a hitch, as you generally want flights to. So, <laughs> yes, <laughs> yeah, definitely, especially in the midst of a pandemic. Exactly. Um, so let's start by getting into the top stories of the week. I want to actually start with a story that we had gotten into on the last episode of the show, and that was Walmart's $3.5 billion investment. Uh, That's going towards a whole bunch of things, including building two new distribution centers, uh, renovating more than 150 stores, and then expanding its e-commerce business. Um, There have been some developments on this story. As first reported by the Financial Post, Walmart sent a letter to its more than 3,000 suppliers on Friday explaining that they are going to be charging a new set of fees to its suppliers as a way to recover some of that $3.5 billion investment. Um, Unsurprisingly, as the FP report details, suppliers are not exactly pleased with the move. Um, The CEO of Food and Consumer Products Canada told FP that suppliers are, quote, absolutely furious. Mark, what do you make of Walmart passing on some of the costs of this investment to its suppliers? Do you think that's the right thing to do here? Well, I mean, the game in mass retail has been moving this way for many years. And uh, cynical people would say that the mass retailers have moved away from being retailers their landlords and their marketing services companies, because essentially what many of them do, not all of them, and we'll talk about the different approaches that they take, they offer shelf space that they charge for, uh, and then they offer services, promotional services that they charge for, and then of course they negotiate a low price. I think what's interesting about this one is, uh, so they have something they could use to justify. So, you know, we are spending a lot of money. I think people know that Walmart is a laggard in e-commerce 
uh, compared, of course, to Amazon. Everybody's a laggard compared to Amazon. Uh, so they're using that needed investment as a justification. I think what's interesting about this one is the magnitude of the charge. So I don't know if you mentioned the number, 5% of a charge on uh, e-commerce sales, in my opinion, is very large, very significant. And, and I think it actually poses a risk because I think it'll be, I'll say, we'll be watching what some of the suppliers will do because mm -hmm. they may have a choice about saying, well, you know what, if you're going to charge me 5% and I'm making 8% profit on the bottom line, I, I can't take a 5% hit. So am I going to raise my price at the top? In which case you're going to have to charge your consumers more, in which case you're going to lose share to Amazon, which is not what you're trying to do. Or am I going to make the decision to actually pull off of the site and only be on other sites? Again, it's not like Amazon is going to be nice to everybody. It's not like Amazon is not also, um, I don't want to say a discounter, but they play hardball with their suppliers and they uh, aim to provide the perception of a very competitive price. Mm -hmm. But yet, but they do have to make a choice at this point. Maybe, maybe some of them don't want to be on the site. Yeah, that's an interesting idea. I mean, they could theoretically just say, okay, we'll take our business to arguably your biggest competitor, Amazon, as you mentioned. Um, I do think Walmart, I mean, they, we've seen this rise of e-commerce kind of explode through the pandemic. Um, and so they are having to invest more, especially in that last mile delivery. So do you think passing that cost along, is that all justified? The word justified in businesses uh, is a funny one because <laughs> everything's in negotiation. And, you know, if you are a producer of food or health and beauty aids or other products that go through grocers and other mass merchants, and if you're in Canada and you decide you're not going to be for sale at Walmart and Loblaws, which includes shoppers, as we know, you, you sort of have a very steep hill to climb to be able to, to, to sell your products. I was speaking with somebody uh, earlier this week who owns a few businesses that sell through there. And his comment to me was, you know, Loblaws and Walmart and some of these guys, they're tough on you, but they give you the volume. And to some extent, you sometimes have to, the expression he used was, you have to hold your nose and just take what they give you and recognize that you're going to make your money elsewhere. Uh, and so again, I think some people may, if they feel they have the choice, they may be thinking it's not worth it here. Also Walmart, I'm sure, is going to tell suppliers who are selling in their store and on their website, well, you don't have the choice of backing out of the website, right? It's, it, you know, you could say that you don't want to be on the website, but then guess what? You just lost three shelf facings in the store. Right. And so they do have power uh, in grocery. They do not have as much power, of course, uh, as Loblaw, Empire or Metro. Uh, but in mass merchandise in general in this country, they have a lot of power and they're using it justified. Like I say, that's uh that's a philosophical argument. I don't know if we can answer it. Fair enough. Um, yeah, I guess we'll see what suppliers decide to do going forward. Yeah. And if anyone does actually uh, decide to pull the plug on on their relationships with Walmart, but we'll, we'll see. Um, let's move on to another topic. I mentioned it off the top um, related to insurance. On Monday, a class action lawsuit was filed in Ontario on behalf of a hotel group that includes uh, the Best Western and Hampton Inn against Aviva Insurance. The hotels are alleging that they were denied insurance coverage for the loss of income that they've been dealing with through the coronavirus pandemic as government imposed lockdowns. We basically brought business to, and the pandemic itself, not just the lockdowns, brought their business to a halt. Um, the class action, if certified, would apply to all hotels 
insured under the same commercial insurance. Um, and so I should note that the class action has not been certified by a judge and Aviva has not yet filed a statement of defense. But I do think this is interesting um, because hotel industry is certainly not alone in dealing with this kind of commercial insurance issue through the pandemic. Um, I mean, what do you make of this situation? Well, what's interesting is it's not just the uh, hotel industry and the other big story, if you remember, I don't remember if we spoke about it on the show, uh, that also happened in insurance in this country was related to Aviva. And so what's interesting is Aviva could come out and say, oh, well, they didn't have specific insurance, which actually uh, addressed, you know, a pandemic or some other, you know, large societal mm-hmm. outbreak or, you know, whatever the language is, and therefore they're disqualified. And I could say, well, maybe they have a bit of a leg to stand on. The challenge is they had another one with dentists in BC. Uh, I think you probably remember the story where they actually did have pandemic language in the clause specifically, and they still didn't want to pay. And their argument there was, oh, yes, we did have pandemic language in the in the uh, in the policy, but yet the government didn't force you to shut down. It was your college that forced you to shut down. And so on a technicality, we're not paying there. Now, in the end, they did land up paying after a lot of back and forth. The challenge is the industry, the insurance industry has a reputation of charging people for insurance. And one of two things happens when you have a claim. Either they fight you and say, well, you were insured for everything but that, or, or they pay you and they say, you know, we're going to, we're going to pay this claim out. Oh, and by the way, your premiums are going up next year because they're going to make up for it. Now, I'm not saying that that's true in all cases. And I do believe everybody has to make a profit, but, and, and by the way, their profit is justified because they are essentially, you know, protecting you against a catastrophic loss. But then when the catastrophic loss comes in, you really have to make sure that you're there. I mean, look at Chubb. You know, I don't know how much you follow the industry and you follow the players. Chubb has built an amazing brand around we never ask you questions. Now, it's not to say they're irresponsible and they're profitable. When you have a claim, what we're not going to do is actually assume that you are being fraudulent or that we're not going to pay it. You have a claim, we're going to pay it out, no questions asked. And I think Aviva right now is having a bit of a marketing challenge because they have two strikes during this pandemic. Right. So do you think uh, going forward, I mean, is pandemic specific insurance going to have to become a thing for businesses? Well, I, <laughs> or is this a once in a lifetime event? Like how, how do you prepare for this going forward? <laughs> it's a good question. I, yeah. I think that in general, society is going to feel that this pandemic is not an isolated incident. And I think if you listen to some public health experts, Uh, And some scientists, they will say that we are now in a phase where we may expect another one. I mean, in our lifetime, you know, we've had other ones. Uh, We've had Ebola. We've had other things. SARS actually ended up being uh, not that bad. It was terrible for the people it affected. But on a societal level, it was not that bad. But I think this is so big and so scary that people will feel that they need some protection. Mm -hmm. The question becomes what types of policies uh, actually come out. And I think... Again, the first one, uh, whether they get away with this or not, I don't know. I think you will not get away with it a second time. In other words, if, if if somebody comes out with a new policy in a year and a half from now and says, we're protecting you from pandemics and they're all over the, the media and they're advertising, 
then they come back and they don't pay one, then it's like, okay, there's no, <laughs> yeah. you, you have yeah. no more excuses. So I think it'll be interesting to see what type of policy and like every insurance, um, it's one thing to say, uh, you know, we want to protect, but it's also what, what are the costs? And so there is like everything else, there's a cost benefit decision, right? I feel like this could be a future segment for the fix. All I'm saying, there's yeah, lots no, to unpack there's here. A lot, there's a lot to think about in terms of uh, this type of insurance and other types of insurance, yeah. Yeah, and what businesses should be doing. Um, but before we get to our fix segment, um, I do want to talk about one final story, uh, and that's all about Google. They announced this week that they will allow employees to work from home through to July 2021, a full year from now. As the coronavirus pandemic continues to wreak havoc, particularly in the United States, where obviously Google is based, um, the tech giant had previously said that it would allow employees to work from home through to the end of the year. Um, here's part of what their CEO, Sundai Pichai, wrote in an email to employees. He said, I hope this will offer the flexibility you need to balance work with taking care of yourselves and your loved ones over the next 12 months. Um, according to a Wall Street Journal report, which first broke the story, uh, the decision was partly because Pichai wanted to help employees with children who may be facing a school year with remote classes or, you know, who knows what they're going to be facing at this point. Um, Mark, what do you make of Google's move to, I mean, July 2021, that's crazy. <laughs> okay, let's, for those of you who remember the uh, bad boy uh, furniture commercials in Toronto, who would like to stay at home with their kids for another year? Nobody, <laughs> right? Like, let's just be very honest about that. Nobody wants to stay at home with their kids for the next year. I love my kids. Maybe they're watching the show today. I don't want them to have earmuffs, kids, earmuffs. <laughs> I do not want to stay at home with them for the next year. And my wife doesn't either. Uh, and I, I think what's interesting about the announcement, you know, when I first heard it, I just sort of the headline, you know, stay at home till July, 2021. I was like, people don't want to do that. And even the people who say they want to do that don't really want to do that. I mean, in Mark, we do market research a lot as part of strategy uh, for companies. And one of the things we say is humans are very bad at predicting their future behavior. When we do market research, we always say you could rely on it when we're asking them about their past behavior and not predicting their future. And so I think we've had a lot of surveys and even you talk to your friends and they say, oh, this working at home is great. I love it. I'm going to do it forever. No, you're not. No, you're not. And the reason but to be not, fair, it is, I mean, it is optional, right? It, it is right. optional. I, so I do like that, but I think you have to be careful because uh, working at home is not good. You know, somebody uh, uh, somebody gave me the expression this morning, which I'm going to steal. Are you working from home or are you living at work? And I think for a lot of people, it is now very hard to separate. Our society was going in that direction anyway, because we all have our phones. We all look at it. You know, first thing in the morning now when I get up, my, my first thing I do is I check my phone. And there's so much... Uh, I'll say interference between work at home. I think it's not healthy. I think it's not healthy to be looking at a computer screen and being on video all day. You get fatigued and you do not collaborate. And there's a certain amount of collaboration that you only get in person. You do not get online. And so I, I think, listen, I'll applaud the, the, the flexibility aspect and I will take him at his word and say he's doing it to give employees something they may need. I just think that it will not provide for the most effective workplaces. And I do not think it's a positive mental health move for people to stay at home. Uh, so I think I think we'll get back to, as we seem to talk about every couple of episodes, <laughs> it's about school. And if the government could spend $300 billion, part of which is going to seniors who don't need the extra money, students who don't need the extra money, and some workers who don't need the extra money, 
They can spend another $10 billion to find a way across this country to make schools safer. Like it's just, it's just like, and they're opening gyms and bars. I'm sorry. I don't mean to rant. Well, I do mean to rant. They're opening. <laughs> I do actually. They're opening gyms and bars, right? And we don't think, seem to have a problem with that. And they have a plan for that. And we, it's almost August and we don't have a plan for schools. Like I, I just, I, I gotta be honest. I don't get it. Yeah, we know how how closely tied to economic productivity it is to have parents be able to work um, and have childcare taken care of, especially for women. We've heard this referred to as the she session sure. um, as a result of this. Uh, but that's a topic I think we can we can and should dig into in a future episode. Um, I do want to shift over to our next segment. Um, let's move on to the part of the show where we dig into some of the issues that businesses are dealing with and get your ideas for the fix. We're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we'll get your advice and dig into some of the issues that businesses are dealing with. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. We spend a lot of time on this show talking about the retail industry because it has been going through such a reckoning through the coronavirus pandemic. Um, we've done a deep dive into the apparel industry. Today, I want to focus on one that uh, doesn't necessarily impact everyone, but I know a lot of people are interested in it, and that's luxury retailing. When this pandemic first began, luxury retailers were among the first to really feel the impacts of the COVID-19 pandemic. That's in part because luxury retailers do rely quite heavily on the Chinese consumer, and that is where we saw the virus first began to see impacts. I remember uh, back towards the beginning of the year, I was covering Canada Goose's earnings, and they had already cut their forecast at that point because of the impact they were seeing in China, specifically um, Chinese consumers were staying at home, both in China and then abroad. So we're seeing a recovery in China these days, but um, in North America and around the rest of the world, it's, I mean, the situation is still uncertain. So as you look at luxury brands and luxury retailers, what should they be thinking about in a post-COVID-19 recovery? What's the fix? There's a, there's a lot that they should be thinking about, and uh, you're certainly correct to point out that uh, luxury goods depend on the Chinese consumer. Uh, there are many people who are affluent in China who love buying uh, brands, especially you know brands of the Western connection uh, and that are associated with luxury. Uh, luxury goods also depend on an in-store experience. And as much as everybody talks about the online world and how online has changed everything, luxury brands still do better in store. And it's, it's the starting point of the context for the discussion because uh, the experience that you get in store allows you to get the margin that you do. And so what people need to be thinking about as they are thinking about how to, I'll say, get through the next year and a half, um, how can they use their margin to protect their brand? And when I say how to use their margin, the fact that you can make 60 or 70% and sometimes more on a good um, is very different from a non-luxury good when it's sold at retail. But the reason you get that is because you invest in your stores and you invest in the experience. And so your priority now is to find a way to move your goods. 
and to make sure that your brand protects its value. So if you're not going to receive customers in store, how can you use your margin to actually provide some of the same experience? So, uh, I mean, so how do you do that? If, if people can't go into the store, where do you, where do you start with that? Well, let's, first of all, they can go into the store, uh, in lower numbers. Uh, and let's assume for a second, I mean, your point is valid because you know, it's harder and it may not be that way throughout the whole, uh, next year and a half, but let's assume we'll have some ability to get people into the store. And, uh, we remember that in store, they do not need the store to be full. They need the store to be productive. Mm -hmm. And so one of the things that, uh, Harry Rosen does, and, uh, for those of you who don't know, a very, you know, Canada's upscale menswear, uh, provider, they do appointments. And one of the reasons they do appointments is that if a man is going, uh, if I'm going in, you know, twice a year to get my suits, you know, for summer and winter, you know, there's fitting and there's a lot of time that you need and you actually don't want to go and see your specific rep and then find out, you know, he's busy with some other customer. And so they do appointments. The other thing that appointments do is they create uh, the image of exclusivity. You need to make an appointment because to come in here is a big deal and we need to be ready for you. And when you come and make an appointment, here's what's also going to happen. You're going to spend money. You're not going to come and browse and walk in the store and walk out of the store. And I think that's something that luxury retailers have uh, to their advantage. Now it's not an overall advantage, but it's somewhat of a mitigant people who come are serious shoppers. Mm -hmm. So I would say use the appointments because then, you know, you could manage the flow in your store, provide some sense of exclusivity, and then you could also prepare and then use the internet to get people ready for their appointments and give them suggestions before they come and make sure that when they come, they're going to come in on that 15 minute appointment. I mean, if it's buying suits, it could be 45, but whatever it is. Mm -hmm. So that's just one thing. Yeah. Go and ahead. interestingly, actually having that appointment, it creates that relationship with your customer that sure. um, for many retailers through this pandemic has been so important, building that customer loyalty to make sure that people will stick with you through turbulent times. Um, given, I mean, we mentioned, I mentioned this off the top that the luxury market is so reliant on the Chinese consumer. Um, that does relate to travel as well, because they're not just buying within China, it's internationally. Where should luxury brands be focusing their market on? Like, should they still be uh, looking at that market as their base, given all the uncertainty about travel right now? I think that um, to some extent in marketing, people believe what you tell them. You know, remember that uh, the diamond, uh, the diamond industry was revolutionized by a marketing idea. Right. An ad agency in New York told us that actually you should spend uh, money on a diamond and a diamond is going to be linked with marriage. So we have an opportunity now and, you know, we as I'm, I'm not in the luxury segment, but there's an opportunity in the luxury segment to tell the Chinese consumer they don't have to travel to buy luxury goods. And I think we can implant the idea in their head. Hey, you used to look forward to going to New York or going to Paris or Chicago, you know, Michigan Avenue, like, you know, that's where you would go and get uh, your luxury goods. Guess what? You're going to get them at home now. We're going to open a store. We're going to open uh, a kiosk. We're going to open a place and people are going to come to your home. So that's another thing I was going to say, it, coincidentally, also a Harry Rosen thing, but it happens to apply to lots of categories. Go to people's homes bring them something, allow them to touch it. 
allow them to look at it. There's only so much you're going to be able to do online. And so I think what we need to do is sort of work with what we have. And so if you have stores in China and you have people, you know, they have the money because if they were able to travel, right, again, I'll go, I've talked about this since the beginning of the recession aspect, 30 or 40% of us have had their income curtailed. 60% have not. And the 60% have not have spent a lot of less. So we may need to, as marketers, remind people, hey, you know that $20,000 trip that you were going to make? And hey, remember, you were going to spend $5,000 on that trip on a Prada bag and a Gucci purse and uh, some loafers? Why don't you spend $3,000 and save the 20 and here are the goods? And mm -hmm. so they may not be in the habit, but we need to use marketing to create the habit. I say, yeah. right. I was going to say, yeah, right. But um, I cannot relate to that <laughs> at all. You cannot um, relate. You're not, you're not, you're not going to, you're not in the target to buy some uh, $3,000 Gucci loafers. No, but one day, one day. One day. <laughs> um, I do want to shift to another industry um, that can be somewhat related to luxury, depending on what kind of money you're earning. Uh, and that's the auto sector. Um, there's a ton to discuss here, but I kind of want to separate it into two discussions. First, looking at uh, car sales and dealerships, and then also obviously the uh, auto manufacturing. But let's first talk about sales. Um, they've unsurprisingly plummeted through the first half of the year. According to DeRosier Automotive, sales per dealer franchise have fallen between 30 and 40% in the first half of 2020. Um, the situation has started to improve. Uh, Canadian vehicle sales were down about 16% year over year in June, uh, which might seem like a lot, except when you look at April, which saw a 75% decline, and May, which was 44% decline. So, I mean, vehicle sales are very much tied to the economy, which is obviously going through uh, some significant uncertainty. But, I mean, if you own a car dealership, what kind of solutions should you be looking at through this period? You, you, we are seeing sales recover, but I think there is there is a lot of questions about what happens next. Yeah, I think one of the things is if you own a car dealership, one of the things you are very aware of today is that you don't make money selling cars, right? So what has been true for at least five years and maybe the last 10 years is that car dealerships and the reason they build these $20 million very fancy uh, dealerships is that they want people to come back for service because that's where they make money. So car dealerships, uh, generally speaking, if you look at a PL of a car dealership or a car dealership group, and we've worked in the sector and so we know, uh, the amount of profit that they make from car new car sales is very small. They make money on what's called F&I, so finance and insurance, which are add-ons when they sell the car, and they make money on service. And in terms of sales, they also make more money on used cars because, as you can imagine, the market for used cars is what we call less efficient. It's less possible for you to know the exact right price for something because there's a lot of wiggle room. So one of the things to think about is uh, how much more of the other stuff you can sell. Now, service is hard when people aren't driving as much, and F&I is hard when you're not selling uh, as many new cars. But interestingly, when I looked at one number uh, this morning, the new car sales was down more than used car sales uh, and uh, service. And so they are still managing to get service done because service needs to be done. Some of it's a function of time and also, also things do break. Um, the other trend that's happening in, in cars, which has been for a long time, is that as cars are held for longer by consumers, the service becomes an even more important part. 
right? So I would say that all that to say, all is not lost if new vehicle sales go down for a period of time, because in the medium term for a dealer, as long as there are enough cars on the road for them to service and then use cars to trade, they will be fine. I think there are things they could do in the interim. They are, it's funny, when we were talking about luxury retail, I was thinking about the same thing for cars. Mm-hmm. Appointments, go to, I mean, if you buy a luxury car, uh, I currently don't own very fancy cars, but in the past I have at times, and you know they know how to you know, come and see you at your home and do pickups and make you feel uh, very special. Well, you could do that now, even if you're a slightly, I'll say, not lower end as if a cheap car, but lower end than the high end brand. Because again, you have that ability, you have some margin to play with in absolute dollars. The other thing that I think is interesting about the auto sector is, you know, we talked about this in fitness, it's not just the dealers, but think about the ecosystem uh, in the auto space. So think about the other people that are trying to make money off of the market, the market being miles driven. So think about the rental companies. Mm-hmm. I would have thought today, that rental companies have a huge opportunity to go to people and say, okay, you like to drive, you like to get to work through transit. Transit is going to be a gong show for the next six months. You don't see yourself as a car owner. I have an idea. I'm going to lend you a car for six months. And it's not $49.95 a day like it normally is at budget, but it's $29.99 a day because you're going to get it for a month. You don't have to buy a new car. You don't have to get financing. And then when you're done with it, when this crisis is over, we'll be happy to take it back. So I think there's a profit opportunity for them. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I think the other people who are in trouble are people who are washing cars and servicing cars. And I think they have to be creative about how to get people to do some of that stuff while they're not driving. I think they're in trouble too. Right. And then just very quickly on the, the manufacturing side, um, massively disrupted by this pandemic in the early days because you know plants in China were down um, and then now with you know our in Canada especially it's highly integrated with Canada uh, with the U.S. and Mexico. Um, most manufacturers have resumed operations, but at a reduced capacity. When we look at manufacturing and the supply chain in particular, is there anything that they should be thinking about? I think a lot of it depends on the deals that they have with their unions, and that will be different by country. Uh, I think, I think. Uh, that they're not that happy about, uh, they're not that unhappy, I should say, about their inability to produce. Because what what's happening is, if their demand is reduced, and again, there's some question because sales are rebounding, but if their demand is reduced, it's nice to have a lever to also curtail supply. Whereas normally, it's very hard to go to your union and say, hey, we're having a bad month, we're laying people off. It's a lot easier now to go to your union and say, hey, guys, you know, we have 30% down, or we understand that some percentage of you can't go to work or the only way to make this work safety wise is to have, you know, one less shift or, mm-hmm. uh, you know, a, a bit of a different spacing and therefore fewer employees. And so I actually think uh, it's not a bad thing for them to have to, to be able to curtail supply at the same time as demand is dropping. Having said that, I think the different brands will be in a different position in terms of who of the non-car drivers are now making the decision to buy a car because they do not want to be on transit for two years. And those those brands, and I'm assuming it's more lower end or or more utilitarian vehicle, they have an opportunity. They want to be able to produce, whereas the higher end brands uh, may not. Last piece, there's also financing, right? So 
financing for homes is cheaper, financing for cars is cheaper. And so they, they may use that lever to encourage people to, to Exactly. Yeah, for sure. Well, we'll see what happens. And I think it will vary by um, the different auto manufacturers. Um, Mark, that is unfortunately all the time that we have for today for this episode. If you want to rewatch it, uh, you can check out the Yahoo Finance Canada website. We have also launched Crisis Management as a podcast. You can listen and subscribe on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. And if you have any questions for Mark or feedback about the show, you can email me at alicja at yahoofinance.com. Thanks for listening.